Matthew chapter 24, page 982 in the Pew Bibles. So, are you ready for Christmas? Do you have all of the packages purchased? Are they wrapped? Do you have all the ingredients bought? Do you have the menu laid out? Do you have the travel itinerary figured out? When you have to leave here to get to there and how long you can stay there before you have to leave to get to that place? Do you, do you, have you figured all of the Christmas stuff out? Um, if you have not finished all your shopping, uh, there will be a prayer team for you at the end of the service. Because nothing says peace on earth, goodwill to men like the shopping mall around Christmas time. Uh, you know, it's, it's a crazy time of year and it's really fun, it's really great, but it takes a lot of work, a lot of energy. And it's not uncommon for people to reach, uh, you know, Christmas and, and with, with the mindset of, you know, I just can't wait till this is over. You know, I can't wait till Christmas is done. Which is kind of weird that, that we put so much energy into it and we're so happy when it's finally done. And I think it speaks to just the craziness and the busyness uh, and, and the way we do ch uh, Christmas here in our culture. Um, but it also sort of highlights that there's another way to think about the question, are you ready for Christmas? You know, there's the hustle and bustle sense of are you ready for Christmas? But then, of course, there's the real meaning of Christmas. Are you ready for Christmas? Are you ready to celebrate and savor and treasure the birth of Jesus? In other words, am I ready mentally and am I ready in my heart? Am I ready to, to really um, enter into that celebration that God became a man, that Emmanuel, God with us, came, that God became incarnate to save us? And so that when I'm singing those carols and I'm hearing the Christmas story read, are my heart and my mind ready to, to enter in and to rejoice in that and celebrate it? And I think that's one of the challenges uh, of being Christians in this time and in this place is that we feel that pull between the, the craziness and the busyness on the one hand, and yet, what's it all about? Why do we even have this holiday in the first place? And so that's always a challenge to get past the glitz and, yeah, we love the, you know, who pudding and the who roast beast and all that stuff, but the, the real celebration but I'd like to actually push the question one click further this morning and, uh, and ask again, are you ready for Christmas? But maybe in a sense that we often don't think about it. Are you ready for Christmas, the sequel? Christmas 2.0. Uh, the Christmas that's yet to come. We're not only celebrating the coming of Christ, but the reality is that we are still anticipating the second coming of Christ, that there is a second advent of the God-man, that, that there's another coming. And so as Christians celebrating, we don't just celebrate Christmas, but we always realize that we live between two Christmases. And, and that shapes the way we think about our lives, where we're reflecting back and celebrating that Christmas. But it, for us, it's more than just kind of a nostalgic certain time of the year good feeling that we, we go through. We're also looking forward to the fulfillment of Christmas, the further arrival of Christmas. Did you even know there was a Christmas part two that's coming? 
Well, Jesus here talks about it. So I want to read a Christmas story with you, but this is going to be a bit unconventional. This is another Christmas story, the second Christmas story that is yet to, to happen to us and to the world. And it's in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31. And let me uh, read these verses. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus said, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. This is a little glimpse, just a little blip, glimpse kind of a thing of the second coming. And it's really short, and it's really epic. It's, it's small, and yet it's enormous. I, I feel like when I'm reading these verses, it's kind of like looking directly into the sun. You know, when you're a kid, your parents tell you, don't look directly into the sun. And so what's the first thing you do? You look directly into the sun, because like, why can't I do that? And then you look and you go, wow, okay, that's why I don't look directly into the sun. And you get a quick glimpse, it's super bright, it leaves an after image on your eyeball, and, and it's, it's awesome, but you can't stare at it very long. And I feel like that's what we have here. We just get this little glimpse of the brilliance of the second coming of Christ, the Christmas, the sequel. And, and so what I want to do is I want to think about this text and think about the second coming, but then use that as a kind of lens through which to revisit and further appreciate the first Christmas, and then, like I said, to kind of find where we live between the two, and as we think about the second Christmas and the first Christmas, to understand better how we live in this world with all of its contradictions and complexities. And so, uh, let's look at this text, the story of the second Christmas that's yet to come, and um, let's tackle it by asking two questions. Question number one is, what will it be like when Jesus comes back? How will he come back? What, what will that moment be like? And the second question is, what will Jesus do when he comes back? So the first one is, what will it be like when he comes back? And the second question is, what will he do when he comes back? So what will it be like at Christmas, the sequel? Uh, I think that we could say at least two things from this passage in a kind of summary way. First of all, when he comes back, it will be global. It will be a global coming. Everybody will see it. You know, you look at this text, notice the global, inescapable nature of this. It's, it's so big that the whole world will see it. Verse 29, it will be accompanied by cosmic signs. The, the, the creation, the heavens that we see, the world, the universe, will, it will be like unhinged and unbuckling before the Lord. The sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. Something will be happening in the heavens that will seem like the end of the world because it will be the end of the world. Uh, or look at verse 30. It says, at that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And we'll talk about what that means, the sign of the Son of Man in a little bit. But, but again, here's this idea. It's up in the sky. You can't miss it. Everyone's going to see it. And we're going to see this thing. It, it's, it, you won't be able to avoid this moment 
It says in verse 30, all the nations of the earth will mourn. That there will be a, an international reaction to the coming of Christ. And then verse 31, he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. So it will be noisy and loud. And, and then of course at the heart of it, verse 30, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. And again, this emphasis on the sky, the sky. Because the thing is, everyone can see the sky. This, this won't be some private, personal experience. And in fact, even before this passage, Jesus uh, warns his disciples not to be fooled by false messiahs and reports of false messiahs because his point is, when I come, you're going to know it. Every, it. You're not going to have to be wondering, did he come? There isn't going to be anyone waking up the day after Jesus comes, you know, checking Facebook and Twitter and being like, what? He came? Oh, that's interesting. How did I miss that? You know, there won't be anyone doing that the day after he comes. There won't be a day after he comes. because you know, it's, it's the end of the world when Christ returns in all of his glory. In fact, look what he says in chapter 24, verses 26 and 27, just before our passage. He says, so if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or, here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When lightning hits in Hingham, you can see it in Abington. It's, it's all over the sky. That's the idea. Everyone's going to see this. When Christ returns, it'll be a global event, visible to all. Contrast that with how he came the first time. What was the first Christmas like? Well, it was, it was almost invisible. He came and Hardly anybody knew it. It was, uh, you know, there's a reason we sing Silent Night, because it was a silent kind of event. His first coming was like a, it was like a black op, you know. He was like infiltrating the planet. Nobody knew that he had come uh, sneaking in under the radar covertly. You know, a few people knew he came, like a peasant named Mary and a peasant named Joseph, and a few people knew he came, like some shepherds out in the field. But, I mean, of all the people to tell the news of Jesus' arrival to, I mean, shepherds out in the field, that'd be like if Jesus came today as a baby, and this was the first Christmas, and there would be some guys out working on a power line at night because it went down, just a bunch of working stiffs having to work the midnight shift, and the angels appeared to them. Like, that's who shepherds were. They were just regular working stiff kind of guys, uh, working with their hands out in the fields. And that's who the, the angels went to. So... Very few people knew about this. You know, there's going to be stars, they says, falling from the sky, a, a heavenly disruption when he comes again. But you know, there was a star in the first Christmas, but almost nobody noticed it. The only people who saw it were the wise men who uh, were, were astrologers. You know, guys who, like, that was their thing, was sitting there staring at all the stars, and they were the only ones who, who saw this phenomena, you know, whatever it was, a supernova or whatever it was that happened that they saw, uh, and, and they were the only ones who noticed it, so that when they came to Jerusalem to King Herod and say, so we want, we're here to see the new king, we saw his star, and King Herod was going, what? I, I don't know what you're talking about. It was so secret. Nobody knew. But at his second coming, there won't be anyone who won't know. All will see it, because his second coming will be global. The other thing we can say from this passage about a second coming is that it's not only going to be global, but it will also be glorious. 
It'll be glorious. It won't just be like, oh, wow, there's Jesus. Cool. Do you want to get a burger? You know, it's not going to be like that. It'll be, it'll be overwhelming. It says in verse 30, the Son of Man will come on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Power and great glory. When Christ returns, He will shine and burn and blaze and, and the the heavenly bodies will become unhinged. It, it, it's like His glory will be so great that even the glory of the sun will be, will be diminished before Him. His glory and His awesomeness will be so great that, that the nations will mourn. That's how people will respond. Everyone will be overwhelmed and undone by Him. It says that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. What, you know, what is the sign of the Son of Man? And I suppose the answer is, uh, the right answer is, well, we'll see. Um, but, uh, but probably the best guess I read of the different interpreters who are trying to make sense of that is that the Greek word for sign is a common word for flag or insignia or something like that. So, so I wonder if there's some kind of royal imagery here where the king has come back and he unfurls his banner across the sky. And then the angels come out. I, I don't know, this is the picture in my head is like in those medieval movies where they come out with those super long trumpets where they, you know, they're blowing the trumpet and there's some guy in front of it like holding up the trumpet with a stick because it's so long and they're like, bah, 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 you know, here you, here you, the king. And, and then, you know, the, the flag comes out and then the king arrives and the king is in his robes and he has all of his crowns and jewels and bling and his, his scepter and, and everybody is in awe before the glory of the king. And so it's not just going to be any appearing, it's going to be this this awesome appearing of the king of the universe. Notice that phrase there in verse 30. They will see the Son of Man coming. We saw it back in verse 27. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? Isn't that weird that he talks about himself in the third person? The Son of Man. He's talking about him, but who is the Son of Man? Where does that phrase come from? Well, it's interesting, when you look up the roots of the Son of Man phrase that Jesus uses all over the Gospels to refer to himself, is that it's coming out of the Old Testament, and it's in a reference to a glorious, returning, kingly figure. Let me show you it. Put a bookmark here in Matthew. I'll just go there real quick. Turn back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, in the Old Testament, that's on page 881. Daniel chapter 7, page 881. Daniel chapter 7 is so awesome. Oh, I wish I had an extra hour and a half with you. I could just go bananas. Someone said go ahead. Okay. All right, Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is awesome. So Daniel 7 is, is a, this is like 500 years, eh, more like 600 years before Jesus. And uh, Daniel has this crazy vision about the end. And Daniel's, uh, just try to summarize it, verses 1 to 8, he has visions of all these scary monsters that are coming up out of the ocean. And they represent all the evil nations that, that just wreak havoc in this world. It, it's like, you know, a Godzilla movie or uh, Pacific Rim. You know, all these monsters are coming up and they're fighting out of the ocean. And then... Then the judgment day comes and God's like, enough of that, and God judges the world. So in verse 9, you get the judgment. 
As I looked, thrones were set in place in the Ancient of Days. That's God. Isn't that a great name for God? Ancient of Days. Took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. And its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Ah, it's the judgment day before God. And so God comes in verses 11 and 12. He judges the evil monster nations. But then in verse 13 and 14, in 15, uh, 13 and 14, this is where you get the Son of Man, all right? Check it out. Verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. So Jesus is reaching back and he's picking up this title. And in the Gospels, instead of saying Jesus when he refers to himself or I, he says Son of Man. He's saying, this is me. I'm this guy. You wonder who I am? Son of Man. What does the Son of Man do? He comes with the clouds of heaven. He approaches the Ancient of Days and is led into his presence. He's given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Do you hear the language of Matthew 24 here? And all peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. Stop right there. Like, who in the world is that? So it's, you know, God is worshipped. This is a Jew writing this. Monotheism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. One God. And yet, this ancient of days God is welcoming a son of man into his presence who is then worshipped by all nations. This is crazy. This is 600 years before Jesus. Who is this? Is it God or is it man? It's like a God-man. You know, it's like, wow, who is this person? And he's a king in verse 14. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So what Jesus is saying then is he's saying, that's me. And this verse, this big, hard to understand verse in Daniel will come to its complete fruition on Christmas the sequel. When finally the Son of Man will come in glory and He will come in power. The King will, derive, will arrive and, and all of creation, will, it's, it's like the sun and the moon will be bowing their knees before the King. And all the stars will bow before the King. And the sign will wave in the sky and the trumpets will blow and then the King of kings and Lord of lords will come to claim His own in the world. Oh, it's so different than His first coming, isn't it? His first coming, you know, if His second coming, if, if the key word for his, his second coming is glory, the, I think the key word for His first coming was humility. It was so humble. It was so not awesome. You know, he's born not in Rome, not in the emperor's palace, not even in Jerusalem. He's born in Bethlehem, which is kind of nowhere, unless you're from there. And then, he's, and then he lives in Nazareth, and he's born to this regular peasant family in a manger. You know, this is not a glorious start to your career. And, and, and even as he, he, he lives out his ministry, he's shamed and he's treated with contempt. And, and, and he's just not honored and glorified. 
until finally he dies on the cross. I mean, you, you thought the, the, crate, uh, the manger was bad. You thought that was a step down. But he ends at the cross. He, 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 sort of, he comes at, at Christmas, and then he just goes downhill from there until it reaches the cross. And he dies in shame and humiliation. And even now, his kingdom is in the world. Christ is risen and his kingdom is coming. But even now, his kingdom is not being honored. And, and uh, people today don't worship him the way that, that he deserves to be worshipped. And so there's a humility to the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God. And that's where we find ourselves, right? We live between two Christmases. We live between two Christmases. We look back at the first Christmas and we see that the king was born. They brought him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Jesus was the king, but this king was humble and he was lowly and he died on the cross and even today his kingdom is not honored. And so we celebrate the king, but then our hearts cry out and we're like, yeah, but why don't people honor the king? I mean, that's the great travesty in the world today is that if Jesus really is the king of kings and lord of lords, he's not honored as such. Does, does that ever just weigh on your heart? You know, of all the bad things in the world, of which there are many, could it be that the worst of all is that the world doesn't honor Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords? You know, at the UN, they should have an empty seat with the name Jesus on it. And it should be up above all the other chairs. Like in the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king, in Gondor, where there was the empty throne of the king waiting for the king to return. You know, the UN needs to have a throne that's called like Jesus. Right? Because he's the king. He's the risen Lord of all the nations. And yet we don't worship him as such. And so, as Christians and people who live between these two Christmases, we rejoice in who Christ is, and yet our hearts ache to see him honored and glorified. And our hearts are just grieved when, when Christ is dismissed and ignored and despised. And so we, we love the first Christmas, but it's not enough. We want to see Him honored. And so we look forward to that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the sun and the moon will bow before Him. And all nations will mourn before the King as he comes in all of his glory. And, and there won't be any question anymore about who Christ is. Because it will be global and his return will be glorious. Are you ready for Christmas? Are you ready for Christmas? But let me ask a second question of this text. Which is uh, the one I mentioned earlier. What will Jesus do when he returns? So we talked a little bit about how he will return. It will be global and glorious and awesome. The king will come in all of his imperial pomp and circumstance. But what will he do when he gets here? What, what is his agenda? And it appears from this text that he has a two-part agenda. The first thing that the king will do is he will, he will judge. The king will judge the world. Which sounds funny to us, but you have to remember that, that kings were also judges in the ancient world. You know, in our political system, we've... We've created a separation of powers. We have the executive branch, that's the president, and we have the judicial branch in the courts, and then we have the legislative branch in Congress. But remember, under a true king, it's just one branch, it's called the king. And he makes the laws, and he enforces the laws, and he judges. So ancient kings were judges, and so for a king to sit on his throne was not only a ruling act, but it was also a judicial act. 
And so here is the king returning, and this king is coming to judge. You see the judgment of the king in the fact, uh, again, going back to Matthew 24, that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. And do you notice how that whole section is in quotes? That's because Jesus is quoting all kinds of Old Testament language. It was very common in the Old Testament to describe the day of judgment in terms of the world sort of coming undone, the decreation of the creation. And so this is judgment language. It's the day of the Lord when the king comes back and he sets everything right on the day of the Lord. Today is the world's day. Today is the day of the nations. Today is the day of Hollywood. Today is the day of presidents and governors and parliaments. But the Lord has His day. And it's coming. The Lord's day is coming. And on that day, He will bring judgment to the nations. The Son of Man reference in verse 30. Again, if you go back to Daniel 7, it's a judgment context. So even the Son of Man language sort of carries a kind of judgment freight with it into this passage. Or or just look at the response of the nations. How will the nations respond when the king returns in glory? Verse 30, all the nations of the earth will mourn. They'll mourn because it's the day of judgment. And suddenly everything that they disbelieved will be proven to be true. What a terrifying day. What an awful feeling to suddenly realize that Jesus really is the Son of God, that He really is the King, that He really was the Savior, and that that moment is now past. It reminds me, as, as I think about that morning and sort of missing out, I, it reminds me of a recurring nightmare I have. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm one of those people who doesn't remember their dreams. I, you know, people are like, what did you dream about last night? I don't know, something, who knows. And, and I, for some reason it irritates me when people tell me their dreams. People are like, you want me to tell you your dream? Can I tell you my dream? I'm like, I really don't want to hear it. I, it's, it's not real. So let me tell you one of my dreams, um, just to get back at you all. So this is a, it's one of the few dreams I remember. It's kind of a recurring night. I have a couple of recurring nightmares. One is a tidal wave. I'm like, ah! Uh, usually when I'm stressed out, I have that dream. But there's another dream I have, uh, a recurring nightmare, where I'm back in high school. And uh, this is not going to be encouraging for those of you in junior high and high school. But uh, I'm back in high school, and it's, it's like the spring, second semester. It's finals week. And I'm walking back into one of my classrooms, and, uh, and I can see the classroom. It's my biology class. I remember right where I was seated. And I'm walking into the class, and, and the tests are come before me, and I realize I haven't studied anything. I don't know anything. I don't know any of the answers. And, and I'm in my underwear. So it's one of those dreams where you're just like, I'm so unprepared for this. And, and, and you realize, like, I've... I, this is the, the finals day, and I've done nothing to be ready for this. And, and I just wait, you know, you wake up from that dream like, <gasps> I'm not in school anymore. Oh. So I just say that as a word of, word of encouragement to you students here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's terrifying. And I think that's what that day is going to be like when people will wake up and realize it wasn't just a dream, that actually it's real. And there's Christ, whom they've heard about but kept at arm's distance. And there's Jesus, whose word they've heard and whose law they've heard and they've ignored. And, and, and there's Christ, the King, 
whom they've not adored and followed and worshipped. It's suddenly everything they heard was true. And the nations mourn before this glorious king whom they have through a thousand small ways rejected again and again throughout their whole lives. And then to realize it's the day of the finals and there's been nothing done to be ready for the king. So the nations will mourn on that day of judgment. It will be a day of judgment for the world. Now compare it to the first Christmas. The first Christmas, Jesus did not come to judge the world. The first Christmas, Jesus came to be judged by the world. He came to be judged. He came to bear our sins on the cross. Jesus lived his whole life being judged. People were ridiculing him, mocking him, uh, saying that he was demon-possessed, saying that he was evil. And, you know, his whole life he just kept getting flack. And then finally he gets arrested and he stands before Pilate and Pilate says, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. Well, we better crucify him. Uh, and, and he gets crucified and he dies. And so he undergoes judgment. And so the whole story of the first Christmas is Jesus who was born into this world marching to the cross to be judged not for his sins, of which there were none, but for my sins. Not to be punished for his crimes, but for my crimes. And so we live not only between two Christmases, we live between two judgments. That there's a judgment that's coming for all the world who would reject the Lord. But there was a judgment that already took place on behalf of those who would bow the knee to the Lord. And so we, you can't escape judgment. God is going to set the world right. God is the great moral chiropractor who's going to straighten it all out. On a great climactic day, the world will be set straight at long last. All evil will be undone. All evil will be accounted for. People sometimes complain and say, well, if there's a God in the world, why is there all this bad stuff? And the Bible's answer is, just wait. Just wait. Everything will be brought into account. But that's also kind of scary news, right? Because I have a lot that's out of order in my life. And so we must... Look to one of these judgments. Either come to Christ and receive His work on the cross for you or face it yourself when Christ comes again. But either way, we will face Christ and we will deal with the judgment of our sins. And so come to Christ. You know, come back to Him. I saw a great uh, a tweet this week from a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. And Tim Keller tweeted, he said, uh, nobody is too bad for Jesus. Isn't that good? And then he went on to say, but a lot of people think they're too good for Jesus. Nobody's too bad. There's nobody here who's done so much that Christ cannot save you. But there's a lot of people who think, I'm all set. Ah, I'm fine. I'm good. And that's bad news. So we're all headed toward a judgment. Which one is it? Christ on your behalf? Or you for your own, your own life. But not only judgment, also salvation. Look at verse 31. So how will he come back? He'll come back globally and gloriously. What will he do when he comes back? He will judge and he will save. He will save. Verse 31. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will 
gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. There's a gathering of God's people. Matthew loves this theme. I'm not going to read the passages to you, but if you go back to Matthew 13, he describes the second coming of Jesus as a farmer who harvests the field and gathers in the field and he separates out the wheat from the weeds. And then Matthew 13, he describes the second coming as a time when the angels go out like a fisherman and they gather a net full of all the fish in the sea. That's us. And they separate out the good fish from the, the junk fish that you don't eat. And then in Matthew 25, he, he describes himself as the shepherd who gathers all the animals and then he separates out the sheep from the goats. And so this idea of gathering his people, gathering his elect and and doing that final great separation between the two takes place at the end. And on that day, there's a day of salvation where we'll finally be with the Lord. And so we live between two Christmases, two judgments, but also two salvations. Or probably a more theologically accurate way to say that would be one salvation in two phases. The beginning and the completion of that salvation that Christ came the first time to save me. And so I I look back on that first coming, that first Christmas, and I celebrate my salvation. Jesus died for me. Jesus has washed me clean. Jesus has justified me and embraced me. I've entered into a new relationship with Christ. That's what it really means to be a Christian, is to have a living relationship with Jesus. It's so awesome. You know, to know Him and to walk with Him and obey Him, to have His Holy Spirit in, in me. And, and so, as the person who lives between the two Christmases, I, I celebrate knowing Him. And yet, it's not complete, is it? Because even if you know Jesus, you've never seen Him. I want to see How can I know somebody that I don't see? Ah, I want to see Him. I want to see Him. You know? I, I, it's, it's like the, the, the mom with the, the baby in her womb. It's like, I want to see the baby. I want to meet this person face to face. And yeah, I, I know Jesus and I believe in him, but I have to walk by faith in this world, not by sight. And yeah, I believe God has a plan. That's part of being in a relationship with God is that you walk according to his plan. I know God has a plan, but sometimes you don't know what the plan is in this world. Yeah, I know he has a plan. I look back, I read the Christmas story. There's a plan. I look at my life and I go, I don't know what the plan is. It doesn't make any sense. God, why this? Why that? I don't understand. This doesn't seem like a plan. This seems like chaos. Are you really there? We have doubts. We have questions. And then I look in the mirror and I really have questions. <laughs> I'm like, are you sure I'm saved? Because there's some attitudes in that heart of mine and there's some reactions and this selfishness in me is so much deeper than I thought. And I thought you died for my sins and I'm saved, but boy... Sometimes I, my own behavior and my own attitude seems to say, I, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe you didn't really rescue me. And we struggle with self-doubt as Christians and we go through that whole process. And so if Christmas was it, oh, I'm not satisfied. I want more. And so I'm longing for that second Christmas where I finally see Him. Oh, I want to see Him. I want to worship Him face to face. And I want to to know the plan and I want to see it all come together for His glory. And I want to be done with sin. That's the biggest problem in my life. Me. 
sin. Ah, can't wait to be done with it. Can you? Save to sin no more. No more wrestling. Free to love Christ and to love others with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength without anything kept aside. Can you, I mean, that, that's what it means not to sin. is to be free to love God and others with everything in you, nothing held back. I want that. That's who I want to be. And on that day, we will have it all. And so we long for that day of salvation when it all comes to fruition. And we live between these two Christmases. Salvation purchased on the cross. Salvation delivered in Christ. And yet, longing for salvation to reach all of its fullness and all of its glory in our lives. And so we long for that day to finally be with our Lord. So I ask the question of myself and of you again, are you ready for Christmas? Are you ready? Not the presents and wrapping, though I hope you're done with that. And not, not even only are you ready to think about the first Christmas, although that's part of what we do too, but are we people who are getting ready and living in light of His coming? Um, if you look at verses 32 down to the end of the chapter, the whole rest of the chapter, I'm not going to read it all, but the whole rest of the chapter is pretty much get ready. That's the main message. Get ready. Be ready. He's coming back. Main application, get ready. You know, look at ver- I'll just read a little bit. Look at verses 45 to 51. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. An active, busy servant of the Lord who's ready. Verse 47, I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master's staying away a long time. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he is not aware And he'll cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are the words of Jesus. So, are we getting ready? Not are we perfect in this life, but are we getting ready for that day? Are are we moving in that direction? You know, if you're a Christian, it's something to ask at this time of year is, am I getting ready for the return of Christ? Uh, especially as we think about going from Christmas into the new year, we start making all our resolutions. You know, what are you going to do this year? Okay, I'm going to lose 15 pounds, and I want to not watch so much TV, or, you know, whatever. Give up coffee here, right? And uh, or wh- whatever the resolutions are this year. But to, start, to, but to keep pushing ourselves spiritually and to say, what, what is it the Lord wants me to be doing to get ready? Maybe there is something in my life that I've just never dealt with, and it's time this year to deal with it. Uh, that, that would be displeasing to God and I want to get rid of that thing and, and grow in godliness. Maybe, maybe there's some service that God is calling you to that you've been putting off. Maybe God has put someone in your life to minister to and you've been kind of holding that one at arm's length. Perhaps God's been calling you to, to get plugged into a local congregation, whether this one or another one, where you can really grow in fellowship with other Christians on a regular basis the way we were meant to grow. Or whatever it is. Whatever the the step is that God is calling you to, we need to keep getting ready and keep growing and be diligent so that if Christ were to come back tomorrow, he would find hard-at-work servants getting ready, doing what he's called us to do. 
Don't, don't fall into the trap of thinking, you know, this world's as good as it gets. So eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow, whatever. Who cares? Don't fall into that mindset. Everything we do in this life counts because Christ is returning. And if you don't know Christ, again, I would just invite you to consider the Savior to consider God who loved you so much that He sent His Son into the world to die for your sins and who's coming again to save those who trust in Him. It's the whole meaning of Christmas. No one here is too bad for that. No one here is too bad for Jesus. Are you ready for Christmas? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would get our hearts ready for the coming of your Son. Lord, help us to be ready to just savor and celebrate the birth of Jesus. And Lord, help us to be prepared and anticipating the second coming of Jesus. Lord, I pray that nobody in this room, I pray that nobody sitting here right now would be among those mourning on the last day but that this would be a room where every last person in this room is someone who will be rejoicing, who when Christ returns will be saying, at last, I've been waiting for this my whole life. Lord, may you work in our hearts so that we would all be people who are ready and anticipating your coming. Lord, be with uh, uh, us this year as we continue to live between the two Christmases. God, I pray for those who are grieving this year that you would comfort them in fresh losses, those who are entering into Christmas, missing someone who was here last year but not here this year. Lord, be with those for whom Christmas feels like depression, discouragement, loneliness, frustration, anxiety. Lord, I pray for them that you would draw close to them and that they would cling to you in the present and keep looking forward to the day when none of those things will exist. Lord, I pray, help us to be leaning on you. Help us to be diligent. God, if you have specific tasks and callings for us in this coming year, I pray that you would re-challenge us as a church. Help us not just to muddle through 2014, but to be a people who, at the end of 2014, can say, I've grown. I'm more ready than last year. Lord, we want to keep progressing on and looking forward to that day when everything will be answered. And so, Lord, keep us faithful. Keep us steady, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.